For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. Nehemiah has quite a task in front of him and it's very insightful how he prepares to do the work God has called him to do. Now let's join Pastor Ross with a message entitled, Preparing to Rebuild. Alrighty, are you ready to get started again? Pick up where we left off, Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. Learning a lot. Personally, I, I love the book of Nehemiah. It talks about what we should be doing with our lives, building uh, the kingdom of God all around us, the lives of uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love and the wonderful power um, of the scriptures, Lord, to change us and to mold us into the, the people you have destined us to become. So we pray, Father, for willing hearts and to cooperate with the truth that we're learning and put these things into practice so that we could be a blessing and reach our fullest potential in you. In Christ's name, amen. So we've all heard the insult said about believers. Uh, He's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good, right? Uh, That's describing a person who has lots of spiritual zeal and excitement, but somehow uh, it doesn't translate to practical matters. And instead of being a blessing, they are more of a bother. And this coming Sunday, actually, uh, the Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is going to address a small group like that, hanging out at Calvary Chapel Thessalonica. But that's Sunday's shout-out. But tonight, here and now, Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to meet a guy who's very heavenly minded. And because of that, he, he does a whole lot of good. And uh, that good involves rebuilding and uh, restoring not just the wall of Jerusalem, but people's lives there uh, in God's uh, Israel. And so uh, the lives of God's people who were trying to put together the pieces of their uh, city and their life and their history after uh, 70 humiliating years of a chastisement called the Babylonian exile. And uh, Babylonian, of course, is just to describe uh, exile, just describes to be banished from the country. And so they were banished because of their bad behavior, 800 years worth. And uh, so they they were exiled. And Babylonian for the description of the movers involved who brought the moving bands, and that was the Babylonians. And they came in with moving trucks and and did the deed of taking uh, the Israelites all the way to Iraq. Modern-day Iraq is Babylon in the Bible. So who cares about some dude who rebuilt the walls or or led a team uh, 2,400 years ago What's the application for our lives? Well, I'm glad you're asking why you need to be paying attention tonight. Because we are called God's building. 
and we are called living stones. And the work of the Christian life really primarily is to edify and strengthen one another. And so we are Nehemiah in the sense that God has called us to edify and to build the kingdom of God in our lives, the church. And so, uh, so many dynamics in Nehemiah show us how to do that courageously and biblically. So, uh, we're going to fast forward 150 years uh, from that exile. I have a picture of an artist's rendering of the exile, right? Let me see if I have my pointer. Oh, yes. <laughs> and so the Babylonians came in and destroyed and leveled the temple and the city and broke down the walls. And so for 150 years, it had been kind of in ruins, although in Jeremiah, chapter 29, the Lord prophesied to them it would be 70 years. You know, it's really cool, and I pointed this out before, that Jeremiah 29.10 says it's going to be for 70 years, right? Let me read it to you. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years in Babylon are completed, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to you. Jeremiah 29.11, which is many of our famous favorite verse, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. That's the context of Jeremiah 29, 11, is that as they're leaving, Jeremiah is saying it's going to be 70 years. Well, fast forward now uh, to 150 years from this sad Day, and then you'll have Nehemiah leading the way. Ezra started after the 70 years. Ezra led the first team back. There were uh, 42,360 Jews who went back with Ezra. Uh, uh, and the reason we know that is because it says that in Ezra uh, chapter 2 and verse 64. Ezra's job was really to get the temple up and running. But there's still opposition and the walls trying to go up. But in, in Ezra chapter 4, it keeps coming down. And they burned the gates down again. So they, they tried a rebuilding and, and it's not working. And so 13 years after Ezra uh, and his efforts, then Nehemiah now, it's his turn. And so we, we started to learn about how that burden came to Nehemiah's heart. Uh, I think I have a map of where we're talking about. See, they had to go to, they took them to Iraq, but they ended up dispersing all the way to places even further to Iran down over here. And that was, uh, that was called Persia. So that is where uh, this story is taking place where uh, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king uh, there in Persia. And so that's kind of uh, where we left off. And so things had to change. Things were not going well. 150 years 
They just couldn't get it back together again. And uh, so God started to move. And you'll recall how he did that. Enter a Jewish wife for the Persian king, right? So she wins the beauty contest. This is Esther. And then a new Jewish prime minister over the entire kingdom, right? And so a new heavenly-minded Jewish cupbearer to that same king. So now we've got, let me, let me show you the Persian Empire. The king, King Artaxerxes, Esther's husband, rules this. He's in control. And the Jews just can't get it back together. But now the king who rules 2.5 million square miles has a Jewish wife he adores, a Jewish prime minister that he depends upon to run what you're looking at. His name is Mordecai, who is Esther's cousin. And a Jewish cupbearer who hands him his wine. So it's his wife, his right-hand guy, and the guy who gives him his wine. They're all Jews. You know, he's surrounded, all right? And, and, and God knows what he's doing. Uh, now, when your wife is Jewish and your prime minister is Jewish and the guy who's handing you the wine is Jewish, you are going to see things a little bit differently. You don't want to upset any of those guys or gals, amen? And this is how God is going to start Operation Rebuild Jerusalem. And verse 1. Let's go 1 through 8. In the month of Nisan, which is springtime, March, April, Gregorian calendar, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not sick? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it, you, what is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, question mark Esther, (laughs) asked me, how long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, the towers, by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. So we're going to park there uh, and start with the thought, note takers, a time to pray and a time to act. And so uh, he has the faith uh, not only to pray, but when the door is open to walk through. And so it's been four months. 
uh, since he first heard the news from his biological brother, Nehemiah's biological brother. These boys and their family were, were born in Persia, in Iran. They had never seen Israel, except his brother took a tour of the Holy Land. So he went on a tour, and he came back, and he told his brother the devastating news. They're keeping holes. The gates are piled ashes. We're a laughing stock there. And so, um, you know, all things Jewish, especially in the Old Testament, intersected in Jerusalem, right? You can't be a good Jew and not, you just feel you're displaced. They're living in pagan Iran, uh, where it's very hostile to the Jewish faith. And so um, they're humiliated, their nation, their language, their people. And so Nehemiah just gets a burden And so it's been uh, four months of prayer. Chapter one was just anguish and just seeking God's heart. God, what do you want me to do? How how can I be part of the answer? And so uh, this compassion and burden uh, grows. And uh, now there's movement. It's time after four months. Who knows why? The Lord just kind of put it on his heart. It's dude, it's time. You've been praying about this for four months. And so watch out for that I'm praying about it excuse of not moving. A couple of Bible heroes fall into that category. They've had struggles with that. Moses, remember in the Exodus, uh, he's praying, what are we going to do? Egypt is bearing down on us. It's a dead end. And the Lord says, what are you doing on your knees, man? Get up and go forward. That is just a classic line. What are you doing praying? It's time to move now, right? He told Joshua the same thing. That whole thing with the sin of Achan, uh, you know, and, and uh, the, the Israel lost a lot of people because of that sin. And Joshua was just laying prostrate before the Lord. And the Lord says, what are you doing on your face? Get up and get moving, you know. So watch out for that. Nehemiah spent four months, and when God opened the door, even though he was afraid of what was coming, we're going to see that here. Um, he, he had the courage to uh, go forward on the wings of those prayers and not just, you know, pray and cry and pray and cry and pray and cry and tell people I'm in prayer and I'm crying, uh, but not doing much about it. So uh, he's the wine steward, and we, we already knew that. It's, it's not just about handing them the wine. These guys had to be geniuses. They had to be 10 times better than everybody else because people tried to kill the king all the time. So he had to have somebody who's wise. Uh, one of the uh, qualifications was that he was handsome too. You don't go into the king's presence with any kind of problem or you had to be easy on the eyes and easy everywhere else. Uh, He had to be loyal. He had to be smart. And uh, this guy really stood out. And so uh, he arranged the food in the wine department and protecting the king. And since he was at all the meals, um, they became friends, of course. And, and, and part of the requirement of the wine steward was that he could be an advisor to the king. So he's no ordinary, just he's not a butler. All right, this dude is, he's got, Nehemiah has his act uh, together. And so the moment arrives, I guess it sounds like a festival time because Queen... Um, Half the commentators say it's somebody else. Half the commentators say, of course, this is Esther. 
Of course, why else is he going to, he's going to be looking over at his wife and his wife's going to be making eyes at him like, honey, you know, you want to help this guy. Now, uh, Nehemiah uh, lets us know, and he prefaces the verse there, uh, just getting started at verse one. He says, just so you know, I've never, I never as much as frowned in the king's uh, sight. Why? Because that's royal, royal pro- protocol. You do not go into the king's presence with your own problems, especially if you're the wine bearer. You know, you're the good cheer guy. You know, you don't come in with problems. You come in with, hey, good cheer, you know, relax and enjoy. Here's some entertainment. You don't come in with your own problems and your, your, your depression. And so I read somewhere also that they would cover their mouth with their right hand to go into the king's presence, lest your breath be less than perfect. If it offend the king, he could just say, you know what? He, he, that's the kind of pressure that we're talking about that makes Nehemiah say, I was deathly afraid when this started uh, to happen. So he, verse 2 there, he just decides, you know, he's not going to put on an, an act anymore. He's just going to just see if he, this king notices that he's depressed, you know, even though it could cost him uh, being banished or even worse, depending on the mood of the king. And so he's just going to act as how he feels. So he starts thinking about it in front of Esther and in front of the king. And so the king bites on the bait, right? So he's not putting on any show. He's just letting, you know, he's not doing the social thing of faking when you're hurting so that nobody knows. So he's not going to fake anymore. So he's thinking about it in the king's presence there. And um, here we go, you know? The king bites and, and he, and he says, um, Nehemiah, you seem down, man. Uh, depressed, and you're not sick. So what's going on? You're unhappy on a happy occasion. Explain. Oh, there was no please. He's in, this guy's in trouble because, and he knows it, and he says, a terrible fear came over me. In the Hebrew, that's very strong. It's like he was terrorized. It gripped him. He understood for a few reasons he's terrorized. Number one, too late to turn back now. It's out. And he's got this whole agenda of what he wants the king. Not only is he going to break royal protocol in, in coming in with his own problems and, and a party night, and he's going to say, hey, yeah, oy vey, I've got this problem, my people, you know, and all of this. It could get him in a lot of trouble. Uh, but then look at the list he's going to ask for. He's going to ask for a leave of absence. He's going to ask for financial support. He's going to ask for letters of recommendation. He's got a list a mile long. And so, yeah, he says, I was terrorized when he noticed. You know, it worked. I was kind of hoping he would say something. And and when the door opened, I was like, it's time. Here we go. And so he's going to lift up a prayer. He prays, you know, quickly. You know, he had already prayed for four months, but then a quick prayer is going to go up. You know, it says a happy heart makes the face cheerful, but heartache crushes the spirit. And so he just let a little bit of that come out. So um, so verse three here, uh, Nehemiah responds wisely and courageously. And he says, um, so I just take, I look at this and say, 
Lord, when, you're in, when I'm in a tight situation, in a fearful kind of conversation, what, what is good wisdom? And number one is affirm the person. It's always nice to say something sweet and affirming and uplifting before you drop the bomb, all right? So he says, amen? That's so true, you know? Don't sit somebody down and just rip them apart, you know? Let them know, you know, five things you appreciate about them, three ways that you're really working well, you know? And now can we, can we talk about something that is a concern? That's smart. So he says, oh, king, live forever. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm submitted to you and you're in your reign. I'm loyal, true to the end. It may be a long reign. Uh, This is nothing personal, all right? Because he's the dude who stopped it in Ezra 4. Artaxerxes is the king that that got behind the attack on Jerusalem to level it to where it was again. They were building up, but Artaxerxes in in Ezra chapter 4 is the dude who said, stop them, they're rebelling. Well, in Ezra chapter 6, in between 6 and 7 and 8, he marries Esther. So there are things that are changing. So there's a lot of tension in the room. He's asking this guy who was the the king who, who put the... The, uh, the, the stop on the, on the growth and of the rebuilding. So, so here we have uh, number two. Uh, I really like how he, he doesn't mention Jerusalem. So he starts off just shooting for the heart, finding sympathetic commonality, right? So he, he doesn't want to step on a, an emotional landmine. So he's not going to bring up Jerusalem, right? He's going to say, well, of course I'm sad. The city, no name, he he doesn't say Jerusalem ever. The city, but he's going to get it. The city where my parents and grandparents are buried is a garbage dump. The gates are just big ash heaps. And that king can understand respect and dignity and honor, especially for family and your father and your mother and your grandparents. That's that's a commonality that they shared. And so he's going to zero in on that instead of saying, yeah, Jerusalem, remember? Ezra chapter 4 says you're the one. And, you know, Jerusalem had a bad reputation with Persian and Babylon kings because they were rebelling, right? And so he doesn't bring that up. He doesn't... Listen, when you're in a sticky situation, choose your words or lack of words wisely. And if you can avoid just just sabotaging it right from the first sentence, do so. And so there's some wisdom there. And so he relates to him. He he can respect that. And so the king extends the scepter, as as it were, in verse 4. Instead of off with your head, he says, how can I help? instead. So that's good. So he says, what is it that you want? So he offers a quick prayer. One of those prayers that while you're formulating the words, you're, you're in touch with the Lord. Like, oh my word. This is like the person says, how do you become a Christian? And you're like, oh, oh Lord, Jesus help me, right? Because you know this is the moment of destiny. I don't want to blow it. I remember one time, it's not in my notes, surprise. Um, I was on a street corner passing out stuff, you know, leaflets and things about the Lord. And a guy says, okay, listen, you got 10 minutes. Give me your best shot. 
Why should I come to this Jesus of yours? Go. <laughs> you know, you just start panicking, you know? When does anybody ever say, hey, you got 10 minutes right now. Convince me to go to heaven. Ah, that's too much pressure. <laughs> so you start praying, you know? I used to do this thing where I would fingerspell SOS while I'm talking to them and asking God for help because it's just like, I really, so if you ever see my hands moving when I'm talking to you, just know I'm having a struggle with you. <laughs> he doesn't stop and say to the king, oh, king, you know, I know you're a Persian king, but I'm a Jew and I need to pray right at this moment. You know, dear heavenly father, no. He's shooting up a prayer while he's formulating the words. But you know what? Emergency prayers are good, but this emergency prayer is resting on a four-month foundation of solid praying, fasting, mourning, seeking, thinking, strategizing. So, you know, emergency prayers are good. I highly recommend them. But the foundational prayer life uh, is even better. Amen? So Nehemiah frames uh, there in verse 5 his initial request. I love it. If it's okay with you, if you're happy with me as your servant, if you think I'm doing a good job kind of thing, if you think it's a good thing, then. Now, people say, oh, the schmoozing. You know what? He's not schmoozing. He's being courteous and polite. What is it with Christians who just want to take away everybody's titles and we're just going to just, we're so casual because we know the Lord and that means everybody else is nothing and no one, you know? So we just talk about people sometimes with a lot of casualness and, 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 and not enough respect, especially for government officials whom we are called to pray for and uphold in prayer, not just constantly tear them down, right? So anyway, uh, he's not schmoozing. There's some social cues, and uh, he's saying, here's what I would like. I would like you to send me to a city in Judah where my ancestors' graves are so I could rebuild it. So verse 6, you know, the king wants some specifics, and so... Um, some commentators uh, say that this parenthetical information here is that the queen is sitting beside because he's looking at the queen and the queen is there. Why is the queen even mentioned? Uh, the grammar suggests that the queen is involved in the conversation. And so we think that it is Esther batting her big brown Jewish eyes at her husband. Honey, sugar pie, listen... You saved us from being annihilated. Now we need your help to rebuild our city. You know, I can see that happening. So anyway, the, the, the king's first uh, concern is a great big compliment to Nehemiah. He doesn't say, how much is this going to cost me? He says, how long will you be gone? Because I need you. I need a guy like you your work ethic, your attitude, your loyalty, your dependability. This should be the story of every Christian worker. Every boss should, should, should think of your dismissal or your getting a different job as a nightmare because who is going to fill your shoes? Because you're such a blessing. 
You're such a help. You're such an asset. That's his first question. How long am I going to be without you? Wow. That's a beautiful thing. The quote here, all believers should by their work ethic, good attitudes and dependability, be indispensable to their bosses and company, and as such leave, uh, as such leave a uh, big gaping hole as they vacate their position. So he says, listen, um, he was favorable, so we set a time. Now, he's going to end up there 12 years. I don't think he said 12 years. I think he said, you know, it might have been a couple years, maybe a year and a half, because it seems like he goes back and forth. It's hard to say. Um, but it was something diplomatic that gave him some wiggle room. I'm sure he didn't say a decade plus two years, you know. Um, but uh, anyway, he's got seven through uh, the end there. He's requesting, listen to his list. Number one, what is it that I want? I'll tell you. I'm requesting you to subsidize my trip to Israel. Uh, I'm, I'm requesting a leave of absence. I'm asking for letters of safe conduct through tra travel through dangerous territories. Uh, he wants a letter to the National Forest uh, Ranger Superintendent so that he can get lumber for what? For his own house, too to build the gates, and, and he says, I'm going to have to have a house to live in, too, so I'd like you to sign there and just say, hey, give him the lumber that he needs, you know? No wonder the guy was terrorized, right? And so verse 8 is going to say, because God's gracious hand was upon me. Beautiful. Because God's gracious hand was upon me. I have felt that for 36 years, when things are going well and when things are not. I've just felt like, wow, why me? I, I was just heading right off the cliff without, without any love in my heart for God or the things of God. And he just, he just caught me. He just intervened. The gracious hand of God. Just, I just like sitting, reading my Bible, drinking a cup of coffee, and just feeling the gracious hand of God is upon me. Why? <laughs> there's, no, there's no, it's gracious. Just, just, just stop and enjoy that the gracious hand of God selected you before the foundation of the world, that you would select him, and the two things have come together in the gracious hand of God, despite whatever is going on in your life, headaches included, um, he is upon you in ways to bless you. And so um, the king's heart is like a stream of water which God directs the flow. Right, that is uh, Proverbs 21 and verse one. And so God is directing King Artaxerxes through a few Jewish close uh, allies there. And, uh, but despite God's gracious hand, there are still bad guys to deal with. And so we're gonna take a look at that now. Let's go on to nine and 10. So he went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king also had sent army officers and sent a bunch of soldiers with me. Verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. All right, so um, the king's blessing was sought and obtained, right? 
It doesn't eliminate the opposition. It just exposes them, right? And it kind of provokes them, too. Now, uh, so we've seen a time for action. Now, note takers, it's a time uh, for a little pushback. All right, so uh, I've got a slide of a map. So he's going to take a trip. Trans-Euphrates is in between the Euphrates. Everything beyond the Euphrates uh, was just... uh, heading toward Israel or Egypt. And so he makes the 800-mile uh, journey. It would take a couple months for that to happen, Warren Wearsby. Um, and so this is the path he takes through. He's going to pass through modern-day Iran, modern-day Iraq, Jordan, and Syria to get to Jerusalem. It's a big effort, big undertaking. Thank you for that slide. Now... No one rightly does anything to advance the gospel or the kingdom of God without a little pushback uh, from the opposition. Now, you know what's interesting? You know, he didn't ask for armed uh, guards to go with him, but the king throws that in as well. So that's rather nice. Now, you know, compared to Ezra, Ezra denied an armed guard um, accompaniment. He said... I don't need that because that will compromise my faith in God. God will protect me. I don't need the soldiers. So when Ezra went back, he said in Ezra chapter 8, I'm not taking the soldiers. I don't need military help because that is against my conviction in my trust in God alone. And here you have Nehemiah, who's totally different philosophy, a different time, right? And he's accepting it and trusting God through those soldiers. And so I just see, you know, God shapes and molds men and women of God differently. Their philosophy of ministry styles that are different. There are several evangelical churches in Santa Rosa, and, and we're all very different, Right? I wouldn't say one style is wrong. Are you going to say, you know, Ezra's right and Nehemiah's wrong? Uh, They go about things very differently, both of them. But God uses them both, you know. Uh, If it's a question that you can look at in the Bible and say, no, well, that's one thing. But if it's a question of whether you should should take the soldiers or not, you know, God spoke to Ezra and said, I've got this. Don't... You don't need them. But he did speak to Nehemiah and say, it'd be best that you take them. You know? So that's the difference between religion and relationship with God. Religion is you'd always have the thou shalt or thou shalt not. It's pretty easy, religion. But relationship actually requires a relationship of communication with God. And you have to find out from God, God, in this situation, what would you like me to do? And so, uh, introducing the devil's pawns here, they're going to be thorns in the flesh, Sanballat from Moab, uh, Israel's avowed enemies, and Tobiah from Ammon. Uh, So Moab and Ammon, Sanballat and Tobiah, are both Gentiles, and they are both from modern-day Jordan. And yes, the word Samballot means uh, the moon god has given life. And Tobiah, uh, his junior colleague, 
means God is good. But it's a Hebrew name. It's kind of like Osama bin Laden, if he wanted to come to America and change his name when he was alive, he'd change it to Mark Anderson, you know, to, to help everybody just feel more at home or safe. And uh, that's kind of what he's doing, because Tobiah means um, God is good, right? But Tobiah is the bad guy, and he's a Gentile, and he doesn't want to help Israel. So uh, that's just a ruse is his name. So in charge of Judea are these two bad boys who are threatened by Nehemiah's coming, right? Why are they threatened? Well, number one, they're going to lose their position probably, and their status is threatened. And so the chief political opponent are these two guys who are going to give Nehemiah a run for his money. So they're very much disturbed because they feel like they're going to lose their position. And also, listen, notice this. If, they, if someone's coming to promote the welfare of the Israelites and you want to promote the welfare of the Israelites, then you should be overjoyed, Right? but they're very disturbed when they hear there are guys coming to help Israel. Why are you disturbed? Because actually, you're not for the welfare or the well-being of Israel. So these guys, plus one other guy, his name is Geshem. We're going to meet him later. He's called an Arabian. Uh, Geshem means bulky, you know, so whatever, you know. I don't recommend that as a baby name, you know. You're just calling the kid fat. You know, uh, these three guys are going to be thorns in Nehemiah's side, uh, so we're, but they're not going to be able to be successful about it. So uh, let's get going with 11 through 16. Nehemiah's in the promised land and time to check things out. I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The official did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, the officials, because as yet, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or anybody else who would be uh, doing the work. So a time for action, a time for some pushback, And now a time for quiet restraint and some self-control. So verse 11, after a few days of rest, after an 800-mile journey, um, Nehemiah scopes out the lay of the land. So once again, um, Nehemiah is wise as a serpent and and meek as a dove. Um, That's what Jesus told us to do. He said, hey, listen, I've sent you out among wolves. I want you to be Uh, wise as a serpent and as harmless as a dove. And we see this here. Uh, First of all, he's not a blabbermouth. He's in control of his words. Uh, He's not spilling out information. He doesn't rile up even the good guys. Notice in your verses, he doesn't even tell the Jews. 
what's up. And he's not going to go during the day when Sanballat and Gershom or whatever his name is um, uh, and Tobiah are out watching what's happening. He's got discernment. He's going to go at night. He's not telling anybody what he's thinking. He's not going to be out, you know, stirring things up and sabotaging by talking too much and getting everybody all riled up. And then before you even start the work of God, uh, it's going to come to a screeching halt. It's kind of like pretend uh, church planners go into San Francisco. They get a vision and they know somebody who owns a Kmart and they're selling a Kmart. And so in San Francisco, they've got this vision and things are lining up and they're going to they're gonna make an offer. You know, and so, so they go into Kmart and they're telling all the workers, you know, hey, yeah, we're a church and we're, we're, we're going to make an offer on this building and you know, we're going to turn it into a gospel tabernacle. And, you know, there are going to be healings here and, you know, we're going to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with everybody and maybe at night we can, you know, house the homeless, you know, just, just telling everybody and the neighbors and all of that. It's over. That's not going to happen anymore because it, too much information went out. It, they weren't thinking, right? And so this guy knows loose lips sink ships. It's dangerous to talk too much. In fact, the Proverbs say, avoid a person who talks too much. And, and so uh, he's not one of those people. He has self-control. So he patiently gathers some facts um, so verses 13 through 15 is the recognizance there, you know, and uh, he's got self-control, he's showing restraint, uh, and he's going about protecting the work of God uh, by not uh, giving too much information. And so uh, that's another piece of wisdom there. So it kind of reminds me of uh, Jesus. He starts at the southern end of the wall. I have a picture of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day, well, that's what it looked like, so that was overwhelming. You know, that's the burden. Now, you know what? Go back to that picture. There's a psalm that says, Jerusalem, oh, the joy of it, uh, the joy of the whole earth, that the enemies have come in and look and see the work of God in Jerusalem. This is a psalm. And they run the other way because of the glory of Jerusalem. And this is how Jerusalem was. And this is what stirred up uh, Nehemiah's heart and those who wanted to help rebuild it because it was a disaster. And so go ahead back. And then you come down around here. He's going to start with what, what remains because most of the north had been demolished because the enemy always comes in the north because of the route and the lay of the land. And also Israel was more vulnerable in the north. So the north always took a beating. And so he starts with the valley gate and he goes down to the dung gate, which unfortunately leads to Gehenna in the Greek is where they would burn all the garbage. And that is Jesus' nickname for hell which is no fun, but thankfully John 3.16 says nobody has to go there because he paid the price for us. And then he's going to go around uh, just to the fountain gate. So those are the three gates. So uh, he can't get any further because of the, the rubble, right? So he backs all the way back the way he came, and it was all through the night. And so the wisdom there is that he started with what remained, 
What do, what do we have to work with? And that's uh, where he starts. Um, the southern wall really was the best preserved, and so that's where he wants to start. So he scoped out the situation. Thank you for the picture. Without a lot of fanfare and discreetly at night, being really aware of uh, the enemy and the opposition, very careful and prayerful, and he kept his mouth shut, even to the good guys. Okay, I'm back on track, 17 and 18. Then I said to them, now he's gathered them all together. He's done his thing, and he's praying about it. You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. <laughs> That's a really nice thing to have happen in a leadership meeting. So they began this good work. Now, we've seen a time to get the ball rolling, a time for initial uh, pushback, a time to gather uh, some facts wisely, and now time <clears throat> to inspire some fire. So he's going to share the vision now, and he's going to let others uh, share it with him. So number one, he states the sad facts as they are. Number two, he calls them to do something about it. And number three, he provides inspiration for the motivation to do that. Now, to all the religious leaders and the officials and the nobles and the influential Hebrews uh, comes the first slap. He has to say something very negative. He says, you know, he doesn't say, hey, it's not so bad. Uh, the initial face slap always has to sting a little bit. Um, let's not sugarcoat this, he says. God's city is disgraced, and so are we been 130 years like this. Uh, we're in a world of hurt. We're in a real mess. The gates are ash heaps. The walls are rubble. So he starts with the honest facts, as sad as they are. Then he moves to verses 17. Uh, let's fix this. We, right? So he doesn't say he's, it's not about them. Uh, it's about us and we. So let's get rid of the shame and the fear and the poverty and the insecurity uh, for God's uh, sake and God's people. So ultimately, verse 18 is testimony time. So he's going to say, listen, this isn't my idea. You know, he doesn't want them to say, we've been trying for 130 years. It's not working, right? We've heard this before. Where are we going to get the money? How about the permits? There's none of that because he says, listen, I want to tell you, God has put this on my heart. Let me tell you, I was back. I was serving the king. I went in to see him, and Queen Esther was there, and there was just a miraculous thing that God did. And he's giving the testimony, and it's inspiring their faith in the Lord. God is calling, he's saying, and in keeping with the scriptures, God will enable, God will empower. It's our moment. And their response Finally, the Jews are doing something right. They say, yes, let's do this together. So all of his praying and his mourning and his wisdom, his courage and his vision are rewarded. So God's at work in this guy and they see that and they're, they're catching the vision. All right, let's finish up 19 and 20. 
So, but when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, and the Ammonite official, and Geshem the, see that name? That's really bad. Geshem the Arab heard about it. <laughs> Little typo there. They mocked and ridiculed us. Surprise, I can't believe the world would mock the people of God. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. I really like Nehemiah. So he's inspired them with a little uh, vision. And uh, now God, God and God's team has begun to move. And the devil and his team are uh, doing a counter move as usual. All right, so um, these are the human faces, but behind the human faces, of course, is the powers of darkness, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. And so these three guys are going to be thorns in Nehemiah's flesh the whole time, but God's going to use it really to glorify uh, himself. Now, the strategy of the bad guy is the same as it is today, not much new. Strategy number one, intimidation, mocking, ridicule, and insults. So, you know, they start mocking. Hey, okay, you're going to start rebuilding. Hey, did you hear the one about the Jews trying to rebuild the city on their own? You know, after 130 years, those Jews don't learn a thing. You know, what are you guys going to do? One rock, two rocks, three rocks. Where are you going to get your permits? Where are you going to get the shekels? You guys make like three shekels a, a month, you know? How are you ever going to pull this off? Oh, that's right. You've got God on your side. And, you know, you're the chosen people and uh, you're king's kids and all of that stuff. So they're just going to town with all of that. Now, uh, believers have to just accept that that's part of the calling that we have. Along with the love and welcome of God comes the disdain and the um, scorn of men. And that's just the way it is. And you know what? Jesus on the cross. Hey, you. You who said, oh, destroy this temple and you'll rebuild it in three days. Come on down now. We'll believe in you now, buddy. Come on down. Mocking. He saved others. He can't save himself. That's what the world does to God, to Christ, to the word of God, to you and to me. And that's just part of what we have to accept. And you know what? If it, if it means bearing the insults that fell upon Jesus, I gladly accept that as a compliment, actually. Uh, strategy number two, uh, slander and fear. So they're going to impugn their motives here. What are you guys planning to rebel? You know, because you're building up the wall. So we're going to start those lies going and we're going to send a message back to the king. You know, you sent this guy, but you know what they're really planning to do? They're planning to rebel so that they don't have to pay taxes anymore and all of this. And so one writer said, you'll never do anything significant for the Lord if you're easily undone by people mocking you or making up lies about you. 
So like uh, Nehemiah, you've got to expect that. You kind of ignore it. You kind of deal with it accordingly, but you don't let it get to you. Nehemiah kind of sidesteps it, as you see in your verse. And he says there in verse 20, here's how I answered those clowns. Number one, he says, God, who rules in heaven, will make us successful, period. Number two, we are his servants. We're going to stay focused and do the work that he's called us to do. And we will do it, and we will be starting soon. And number three, by the way, all three of you, Sam Ballot, Tobiah, Geshem, Mr. Bulky, you're all three Gentiles. All three of you are uncovenanted, disgrace Gentiles. You have no claim here. You have no authority. You have Jewish names, and you're here over us, reigning as occupiers, but you have no right to tell us what to do. This is our covenanted land. We are doing God's business. We are his people, and you are uncovenanted Gentiles. So you have no say. All your input is very insignificant because you have no historic claim here. You know, you belong to the people God took away. They're Canaanites. Moab and Ammon are people groups that were expelled for their wickedness, and that land was given over. It was kind of like, it reminds me of when David went after uh, Goliath, and he called him an uncovenanted Philistine. He used a different word, but it means uncovenanted. It means that you have no right to be here defying and disgracing, same thing, disgracing Israel. You have no right. And I think in our Christian life that there are things that come in that are uncovenanted, right? And they don't belong there. And they're disgraceful. And those things we stand against in the name of Jesus and we, we fight spiritually against and can expect that God will remove that because they're not supposed to be there. So he's saying, listen, it's his city, it's his power, it's his people, it's his work, and this work is going to get done. And the three of you outsiders lack the authority to do anything about it. We got through the whole chapter, praise the Lord. It was so easy for you guys. <laughs> Ten words that I, uh, that I see in Nehemiah's life that I want for me. Number one, burden. There was room in his heart for what God cared about. Number two, prayer. He had the discipline to seek God's heart for the direction of his life. Three, risk. He had to step out of his comfort zone and take some chances. Four, effort. He didn't just pray or write a check or send somebody else. He rolled up his sleeves and he was part of the answer to his own prayers. Five, wisdom. He knew how to go about serving the Lord without playing into the enemy's hand. Six, self-control. He knew when to speak and when to hold his peace. Seven, inspiration. He knew how to light a fire in somebody's heart. Eight, tough-skinned. He wasn't easily intimidated. He wasn't deterred by what others think or thought. 
He could take it on the chin. Nine, focused. The only thing that mattered to Nehemiah was what God thought and what God wanted from his life. And 10, bold. He could stand up to those bullies and speak the truth for God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful chapter. Thank you, Lord, for the truths that are are there for us to be built up and inspired uh, to imitate the kind of life and the kind of man Nehemiah was. We want to be like him, Lord. We want to be like you. We want you to use us, Lord, to do great things for you and your kingdom and your cause for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.